Don't worry, I won't hurt you. I only want you to have some fun. This is Prince, the story of 1999, brought to you by The Current in collaboration with The Prince Estate, Paisley Park, and Warner Records. I'm Andrea Swenson. I'm an author and a radio host living in Minneapolis. Previously on Prince, the story of 1999, we spent a lot of time talking about Prince in the studio, but what I want to do now is talk about Prince the live performer. If you have ever had a chance to see Prince perform live, whether in person or maybe with that incredible Super Bowl halftime show or his guitar solo at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know he was an unparalleled performer. And my mind just goes to all of these moments that I got to have watching him play at venues here in Minneapolis and especially out at Paisley Park. There was one night in actually somewhat recent years, it was back in 2015, when Prince actually invited Madonna out to Paisley Park to see him perform. And I got the chance to see Madonna watching Prince. She was seated on the edge of the stage, looking up at him as he played this just monstrous guitar solo. And her mouth was literally hanging open in awe. And I just had this moment where I thought, if even Madonna, who has seen so much in her career and done so much in her career, is just mesmerized and awestruck at Prince, that is a powerful, powerful performer. So we're going to get into that because so far, you know, we've been talking about some of the early moments that tested Prince's resolve and that propelled him to take his work to the next level. And now we're going to ride alongside Prince and his band as they hit the road on the historic 1999 tour, which is referred to amongst fans as the Triple Threat Tour. Between the fall of 1982 and the spring of 1983, Prince, Vanity Six, and The Time would perform over 90 shows, crisscrossing the United States. And by the end of it, Prince was a household name. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That tour was fun, 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 fun. That's Brenda Bennett of Vanity Six. The 1999 tour kicked off on November 11th, 1982. And leading up to that, all three projects on the lineup put out new albums. And Prince tapped his openers to stir up excitement. Prince wasn't doing any kind of uh, interviews or promotional stuff for his music at the time. And we were out doing promo tours, doing videos, doing photo sessions, television appearances. We were not only promoting ourselves, but we were promoting, you know, the boss as well. We did some of it with the guys from Time. So we're out there for Prince. Um, promoting the music and trying to generate the excitement for the 1999 tour. They couldn't wait to see Prince and Vanity Six in the time. Prince and his band were putting in 12-hour days, running through the new material. 
They set up shop at the Armory in downtown Minneapolis to get used to the new stage setup and to film the videos for 1999, Automatic, and Let's Pretend We're Married. Prince's ideas for the flow of the show were changing all the time, and he would cut demos of his ideas for medleys of songs and then pass them out to the band. We get to hear one now. This is a tour demo that's included in the 1999 Super Deluxe reissue, and it features Prince playing a medley of Lady Cab Driver, I Want to Be Your Lover, and Little Red Corvette. As Bobby Z recalls, these tour rehearsals could be grueling, but they paid off. He meticulously worked so hard on stuff, you know. Back then, you just couldn't believe the hours and the effort you went into it. And rehearsal, you know, I tell the story of, you know, rehearsal so grinding and so long. But when you got in front of 20, 30, 40, 80,000 people, you're glad you had it. It's a like a professional sports routine. I mean, you catching a fly ball is routine, but catching 10 million of them will make sure that you catch that one. Hi, I'm Tom Marzullo, and I was the production manager for Prince, beginning with controversy through the end of Purple Rain. He was always very focused on what the performance was and making sure that everybody was hitting the notes and, and making the steps and doing all the things that, that they rehearse over and over and over again. The most fun part by far was when the house lights went down and the energy that came from the audience and the, the treat that they were about to receive feels very much like you are giving someone a major gift. That emotion of that moment to me is, is probably the, the very best part. a live recording of Prince and his band performing Do Me Baby in Detroit on November 30th, 1982. It was their fifth of six shows in Detroit on the 1999 tour. A recording of this entire performance is included in the expanded editions of the 1999 reissue, along with a DVD of another full set in Houston. And as vault archivist Michael Howe told me, special care was taken to make sure these recordings sounded as true as possible to the real experience of attending the 1999 tour. The live thing is a particular uh, consequence to me because Prince was such a compelling, you know, sort of a peerless live performer that we thought it essential to include, you know, audio and video of the tour. Um, and there are a decent amount of board mixes of pretty good quality that have circulated, escaped, you know, into the collector's marketplace, including at least one of the Detroit shows. There were six, five or six Detroit shows um, on the tour, two per day for three days. And the early version on the first day 
has circulated, which is a board mix. But the second, the Midnight Show, which is the one that we decided to release on the box set, had never circulated before, and we had multi-track recordings for it. So it sort of checked two boxes. We wanted to present, you know, something obviously that had never emerged, and we wanted to present it in the most complete way and with the most integrity possible. So we took it right from the two-inch multi-track masters, and we had David Z mix it, who was very much in Prince's orbit at the time and was at the venue and captured the audio and remembers how the room sounded and the general spirit of the of the performance and mixed it as if we were standing there in, you know, November of 1982. It's a pretty great, unsurprisingly, a pretty great performance. And Detroit historically had been and was for the rest of Prince's career a particularly effusive audience for him. And I think he really was able to shine. And, you know, there's a lot of love coming from the stage and back to it. I think you can hear it in the recording. night, Prince and his band would live their performances twice, the first time when they performed them on stage, and then again when they watched the video of their set with Prince, all piled together on the bus or in a hotel room around a VCR. It's an experience that keyboard player Dr. Fink still remembers clearly. The tour bus, uh, right after the show, we watched the show with him for either critiquing or praise. <laughs> yeah. So if you screwed up, you know you'd have to watch it later. Oh, yeah. Yep. So, so if, if, if there was a mistake that was definitely noticeable, and he he turned to look at you, I just kind of turned my head and go, "Huh? Wh- wh- who is that? I don't know. That wasn't me." You know, I'd joke with him. I'd mess with him. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Wow. No pressure. But then if he did a clinker, I'd say, huh, "I just heard you do something too." So Prince made mistakes. Oh, sure, once in a while, but very rarely. Okay. Very rarely. And he was one of those artists that, you know, when he sang live, he, he was just impeccable. So you didn't hear flat or sharp notes and missed lyrics or anything like that. Pretty rare. But there was an occasional flub, sure, just like he's human. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Prince was a perfectionist, and he wanted everything to be done to that level. So we would spend a lot of time... Building a show, playing a show, reviewing the show. That's Leroy Bennett, Prince's longtime lighting and production designer. The neon, alluring look of the 1999 tour was primarily dreamed up by Roy, who is now an industry leader in live concert design. His most recent clients include Lady Gaga, Ariana Grande, and the Grammys. Prince's bandmates say he was basically an extension of the band, moving in time with the music to create evocative light shows. He was also a close friend of Prince's in this era. What I was doing at, at, at that period, and I did that up until 94, I actually operated the lights on every show that he did on those 14 years. And what that means is that I'm manually pushing buttons or faders or whatever, trying to emotionally portray or evoke the emotion of the music in a visual way. 
Uh, sometimes it was with the rhythm. Sometimes it was through the emotional side of the music and fading. And I never wanted to be mechanical about how I operated. I was very in tune with the music, and I was a visual extension of what was going on. Yeah. Do you think it helped that you felt connected to Prince, that, you know, you had that kind of personal connection with him and that you could kind of move in step with him as he's moving around the stage and as the band's moving? Yeah, I mean, it was it was very important that I did have that connection. I'm always moved by music, but I had that connection with him. It was elevated even more. I had to pay a lot of attention to his movement on stage and his little hand signals and things so I could understand where we were at all times. So he would send you little hand signals? There were certain turnarounds in the music or hits or whatever uh, that he would signal the band with. There's certain things. He would hold fingers up, make a fist or whatever. They they all meant something because he would improvise at times throughout the show in certain songs. It was never given that it was going to be consistent. So you had to be on your toes all the time. Prince just like, he could like make the band, okay, now play dead. Okay, roll over. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, so it was one of those kind of songs where, and then he'd do like crazy like horn punch gags. Like we were like circus dogs and he would <laughs> make us do little jump through the hoop. Okay, go. Prince wasn't just thinking about perfecting his own set. He was also closely monitoring the opening sets by his two protégés. The time actually played during both of those opening sets, as drummer Jellybean Johnson told me. I was doing double duty because the time was Vanity Six Band in concert. So that was a trip every night, too. We'd be behind a curtain. Nobody knew it was us. Uh, i tell you a little funny thing about that. When we first started doing it, we wore disguises. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Like what? uh, Jimmy was like in a, a... preacher's robe i had on like sunglasses and a beret and and jesse had on a, a beard <laughs> it was so crazy <laughs> that we did we did that the first few gigs for prince finally figuring what no i put these guys behind so he got a pink <laughs> fishnet curtain and, and we would be behind it and bandage six would be in front of it in addition to watching from the wings as the time and vanity six played prince would sometimes jump in and add instrumentation himself from behind the curtain so no one but the band would know I love that because it would be so nasty when he, he would come out and he'd be back there playing with us, you know, and he'd be in the band with us. And him and Jesse, the, the, the guitars would be just killing. <laughs> like, I'd be just have this big grin on my face when I'm playing because it's just so funky and nasty, you know. And people have no idea <laughs> what's going on back. And, you know, because they look at the band, they, they see in a pink curtain and these three girls, you know, and that's all they're seeing. They, don't, they ain't seeing us, you know, and we're just going at it back there. So it, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that part of it. There's just something so incredible to me about, you know, that he had so much music in him that even though he had his own full yeah. set coming up, he, he just couldn't help himself. He couldn't. He couldn't help himself. <laughs> he, he would say, I watched him sometimes. He'd be on stage and he'd just be making faces at me. <laughs> I'm like, and so I knew it was only a matter of time he was going to grab his guitar or have one text bring him guitar and he started playing with us. He didn't do it all the time, but he did it a lot. There was a fierce rivalry between Prince and the time that extended back to the musicians' beginnings, playing Battle of the Bands showcases against each other in North Minneapolis. But as Prince's keyboard player, Lisa Coleman, remembers, there was a sense of camaraderie, too. We would go to truck stops in the middle of the country, you know, where there's nothing, 
and then out would walk, you know, just imagine the time, the revolution, Vanity Six, <laughs> all walking into a truck stop in middle America, wanting a fried egg sandwich. And these truck drivers are going, what the hell is this? And I'm so glad we all had that time together because it was, it was a triple threat. We were feeling so strong and, you know, just young and cocky. About halfway through the tour, something massive happened. Little Red Corvette crossed over onto mainstream radio and became a top 10 hit. 1999 and Delirious also climbed the charts and the album sales started skyrocketing. This was the moment Prince had been striving for for five albums, and especially since that disastrous experience he had opening for the Rolling Stones. I keep thinking about how Lisa Coleman said that he looked out at that crowd at the L.A. Coliseum in that moment and realized that those were the people he was going to have to win over to be the great artist that he wanted to be. By the spring of 1983, 1999 had sold 4 million copies, and Prince became one of the first black artists to ever be played on MTV. We come to those concerts, and, you know, what used to be mostly at least 50% black, or maybe more sometimes. Now it was like 75, 80% white, and I knew Prince could see that. I knew he could sense that, because yeah. that's what he was trying to do. In making 1999, Prince had been explicit about his desire to reach a broader audience. Des Dickerson remembers having many conversations with Prince about this. Do you think it's fair to say he was trying to reach like a wider audience than he had previously? Uh, open secret. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't about, you know, neglecting or devaluing our existing fan base. It was about never wanting to be limited. It was about never wanting to be marginalized. And that's really, if you look at the population as a whole, well, our fan base should look like the population as a whole and not a small portion of it. So, I mean, that literally was, it's like they have a pitch count sometimes in, in baseball. We, we had the white people count <laughs> X number of minutes before showtime. Road manager or one of the managers would come in if they were out with us on that show. Hey, audience is about 75% white. And then that number kept going up. You know, we got to the place where it was like, the audience is over 90% white. So, and again, it was just one of those things where we didn't want to be marginalized. We wanted our audience to look like, you know, the Western world. We should just just have music stations, not black music stations. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, it's still a problem and it'll always, I mean, maybe it won't always be, but, but there's little bit of that no matter where you go all the time and you know I'm proud that that we broke some rules and changed some things in our early days you know oh boy that was an exciting time because we at, at that point I'd been in the group since the late 78 and here we are it's uh, 82 
So four years of just really balls to the walls, hard work, rehearsing and touring and doing all that stuff. And it was all beginning to pay off, which was great because that was our goal to, you know, make ourselves as popular as possible and please and entertain people. So, yeah, exciting. He had really come into his own as an entertainer and really learned the ropes by then and the confidence was there and his show prowess was amazing. You know, he, he could just control the audience so well and give them what they wanted. And of course, uh, I just remember that the women in the audience went crazy for him. Lots of screaming. Oh. It was like the Beatles. <laughs> this one's for all the fast girls in the house. Guess I should have known the way you parked your car sideways wouldn't last. So you're the kind of person leaving, making out once, loving, leaving back. He knew how to work it by then. He knew how to push every button. The thing that comes to mind most is it was on this tour and with this record that we we kind of had, I mean, it wasn't just the breakthrough, but, but what that experience was like kind of from our side of the table was, you know, full on experiencing what it's like to be a band with across the board radio and at that time MTV success. I mean, that was like a whole other thing. It went from, you know, being largely, I don't want to say unknown in your own, own hometown to not being able to walk down the street in your own hometown. I mean, literally kids camped out in front of my house. I've been chased down the streets of Minneapolis by literally like the, like the monkeys or something, you know, chased and having to like get, you know, police assistance. So it, it was with this tour and this record and this song in particular all of that came together and all of a sudden that whole you know the dream of you know being rock stars and what it was going to be like it was like okay this is what it's like this is actually right here this is what it's like 37 years have passed since 1999 was released and the legacy of the album and this pivotal time in Prince's career endures. For many artists working today, 1999 was their first exposure to Prince and it introduced them to new possibilities regarding race, gender, sexual expression, and this new boundaryless, genre-fluid way of making music that feels very relevant in 2019. You know, I remember being really little and my dad would take me, he, he owned a, a, a tow truck service, so he would take me in a tow truck and we'd go tow these cars. And, and every time Prince would come on the radio, he would turn it up and be like, what you know about this? And he would turn it up and it would be 1999 or it'd be Delirious, it'd be a little red Corvette, something like that. And I just remember being like, Prince is the baddest. I learned from a very young age that nobody can do it like Prince. That's Brittany Howard, a solo artist and frontwoman of the band Alabama Shakes. I got a chance to see Alabama Shakes play at Paisley Park once, and Prince was so moved by their performance, he came out during their song, Give Me All Your Love, and played this earth-shattering guitar solo. I'm so glad that you were there to witness that, because when I tell people that, they I feel like they don't believe me. <laughs> I'll never forget that day. It was such a it was such a last-minute thing. Hey, can you stop by Paisley Park and do a show? And we're like, uh, yes. 
And I remember all the excitement and the buzz among our crew, like when we pulled up to Paisley Park and parked our buses. And, you know, there were some rules. Don't eat no meat, no cussing, no smoking, no drinking. And we were all had this anticipation of, well, are we going to meet Prince? And then his assistant came and got us. Like, yeah, Prince would like to meet you. And, of course, we brought everybody. We had, like, 15 people with us. And he was, like, a funny dude. We, like, had some laughs in the studio. And he was like, yo, I want to play on this song, Give Me All Your Love. I like this song. I want to come out and play on it. And I was like, oh, my God. So he's like, I'm going to learn it real quick. What key is it in? I told him the key. He's like, all right, I'm going to come out there right when y'all hit this part. Okay. And so we're going through our set. And I'm kind of panicking because I'm like, I don't see Prince. Is he... Is he going to miss this? Is he not going to come out? And we're like almost through the song. We get to the bridge section. And I was like, oh, no, I think he missed it. And then out of nowhere, he just pops on stage, plugs in the guitar, and just starts just the most epic solo, just so full of, so full of feeling. And and we were jamming with him. There it was, just like that. And, and then he was gone in a blink of an eye. You know, he kissed me on the cheek, and he just literally jumped off stage and just disappeared. And it was the last time I saw him, you know, he's in every part of creation that I do just because when I look at the album credits and look at Prince's work, it's like Prince is playing the drums, Prince is doing the arrangements, Prince is playing the guitar. He does all of it and he's sharing his vision with all of us. And so when I'm making music, I always know that I can do the same thing because he's done it. I can sit here and play all these instruments and make my vision come to life and just being uncompromising about what I want to hear and why I want to hear it. Another artist who has clearly been inspired by Prince is the actor, comedian, and musician Fred Armisen, who starred in the recurring Prince show sketch on Saturday Night Live alongside fellow superfan Maya Rudolph. Fred first fell in love with Prince through the video for 1999 after coming up in the punk scene. I was so staunch in like what was cool. This is punk. Nothing will ever change. This is the ultimate in cool. And then when I saw this 1999 video, it was on MTV, and it really turned my idea upside down of what cool is. Because I just remember it was so vivid, all those, like, red, purple, I think there was some pink in there, too, but just the sort of bright colors, and that song, and, like, everything about it just really threw back at me what I thought was cool. I don't think any of my friends really got any of these records, so it was just me buying album after album. And the first time I saw him was on the parade tour. Mm-hmm. I, I saw him on that one. I missed the Purple Rain tour, but Prince really became my favorite artist. I really just became a fanatic. I soaked up every lyric, every little drum beat, everything about him. Sign of the Times remains one of my favorite albums of, of all time to this day. What an album. Sign of the Times really affected me. Love Sexy really affected me. And then going into the 90s, I just kept buying his records. It's almost like we had an agreement. I was like, <laughs> wherever you want to go, I will go with you. And I just loved him I, I, you know, all the way through. And, and the music still affects me. And now... Now that like I get to do stuff on TV, I even I respect all his moves even more. I'm like that is such a smart thing to do to change his name, 
I understand so much more now. As Prince's popularity grew, he also began to claim his status as a revered, once-in-a-generation artist, one who was just as respected by the musicians who inspired him as the ones he would go on to inspire in his own career. The Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Nile Rodgers, who broke through many barriers of his own with his R&B pop group Chic, and who's produced hits for David Bowie, Madonna, and Daft Punk, recalls first admiring Prince's work in the 1999 era. I mean, it's one of those records that's sort of like, you know, the Beatles' White Album, um, Michael Jackson Thriller. It's one of those kind of records um, where, you know, there's the world before 1999 and then there's the world after 1999. At least that's the way I see it. Because he, I mean, he became such a superstar after that. It was almost... Um, it was almost something you couldn't believe. It was almost meteoric, his rise. And Prince made such an impression on the world that it was one of those magical forces that was undeniable. I could think of so many of my great friends who were like big superstars that just the mention of Prince would like <laughs> sort of like drive them into a frenzy because he was so damn good. And God knows, you know, my friendship with Prince, of course, I mean, it was just... It was pretty, pretty legendary and wonderful. Our level of respect for each other was so enormously high. We would discuss music and philosophy on a sort of very high plane, if you will, because he was a very spiritual person and I was a very scientific person. So I wouldn't say at odds, but everything was always interesting to us. Like my point of view was interesting to him. And his point of view was super interesting to himself, and he couldn't <laughs> wait to, he couldn't wait to tell it to me. So, and and we we had amazing conversations. We would talk for hours and hours and hours. As much as I loved his music, um, you can, I mean, just think of the special moments that he's given me in my life. You know, not only did he come out on stage with us. At the Essence Festival, not only am I the only person that I believe he's ever interviewed for a magazine, but when we released our last Chic album on Warner Brothers, that was a total flop. The only promotion we got was Prince doing um, the song, You Sexy Mother. Uh -uh. And if you look at that video, check that video out. He's holding our Chic CD. In so many ways, 1999 set the stage for all that was about to come for Prince. His first feature-length film, his first number one hits, his first Grammys. Only a few months would pass between the final date of the 1999 tour and that fateful night in August of 1983 when Prince and his band, which he'd formally cemented as The Revolution, would record their new song, Purple Rain, at their hometown club, First Avenue, and make rock history. He became a leader in 1999. He went from a caterpillar to a butterfly in that one purple trench coat that we talk about, and he became the international superstar that was able to convince Warner Brothers Pictures and a bunch of people that he was, he was a bankable star and a real personality and the iconic look of the photos, the album cover, the tidbit puzzle of the revolution backwards. It's all there. It's all a setup for what's to come 
And uh, it's a really uh, honor to be a part of that. That thing is just, uh, it's a monster. It's a monster. The Story of 1999 is produced by The Current and supported by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This program was produced in collaboration with The Prince Estate and Warner Records and with their support. This story was hosted and produced by me, Andrea Swenson, produced and edited by Anna Wegel, mixed by Corey Schreppel, with script editing from Jay Gabler and production support from Brett Baldwin, Lynn Elliott, Cecilia Johnson, Jim McGuinn, David Safar, and Derek Stevens. Thanks to Trevor Guy, Michael Howe, Giancarlo Siama, and Dwayne Tudal. To learn more about The Current, visit thecurrent.org. If you haven't subscribed yet, search for Prince, The Story of 1999 on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, to learn more about Prince, please visit prince.com. Oh.